in my reading, one of the more challenging passages in the New Testament as a whole, but definitely in the book of James. You don't start out a friendly address with, weep and howl, you who are rich. It's not, uh, that's not an easy way to begin any kind of speech to anybody, but especially when that speech is being given to the church, to your, your friends. When I was reading over uh, this passage for the first time last Sunday night, first thing that came to my mind was economics. Makes a lot of sense. Thinking about capitalism, socialism, free market, controlled market, fair, fair wages, minimum wage, all these other things that are very frequently in the news. But then I thought of a story I had read a long time ago about a young Swiss pastor in the spring of 1912. The young Swiss pastor started preaching on the Titanic and went on to rail for 30 minutes about the evils of capitalism. His church loved the sermon, mostly being poor factory workers. They thought anybody who's arguing for higher wages is a fantastic pastor. But in hindsight, the young pastor who later became a professor looked back on this sermon with a deep amount of regret. Because when he saw the hubris of wealth and how unfairly poor people are treated by rich people, even in the church, he saw that the problem was not in capitalism and the solution was not in socialism. The problem was with sin with greed, the solution was the gospel. So looking at this text, I had to stop myself from going off on an economic rant. And I hope you can see uh, in what James is saying that this is a gospel text. This is not a social text. This is not an economic text. This is a text about how we live with each other in those pews outside the pews, and how you and I live with God. So that's just a bit of a preface. When we look at this text, it's set up like a courtroom procedure. James is giving a summons to a group of people and then reading off a list of indictments against them. They're very serious charges. They're not topics of conversation to say, why have you considered your wealth? They are a direct charge pointing out that what these people in the church are doing is evil, that they stand guilty before the judge. Nothing to sugarcoat that. But in addition to the summons and the charge, James also gives the proper response of the righteous oppressed. And if we break the passage down in those three categories, it will make, it make a little bit more sense. So first off, the summons. Last week when Ben preached about uh, boastfulness and boasting and saying, I will go and do this tomorrow, 
without taking God's plan to place. That was the first summons. That was the first indictment against someone in the church. This is the second. This is an indictment against the people who James calls the rich. This is not to say if you make over $100,000 a year, you're going to fall into this. It's not to say that you don't fall into it. Specifically, these are people who have built up a large amount of money through being very good businessmen, through cheating each other out, whatever. The important part is they have used their money abusively to other people. They have been oppressive. They've been selfish. They've been greedy. They look a lot like you and me. And when he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, he's taking up a very prophetic stance. It's a lot of language used uh, specifically by Isaiah when calling to mind the sin of Israel and why they are in exile. He's playing off of these people's memories of what they've heard in sermons before, what they've read in the scriptures. And he's calling them to see themselves where Israel was seen when, the, when she sinned against God, when she left the law, when she broke the covenant with God. It's a very uh, scary and condemning place to be when you hear the summons, come now, weep and wail. To follow the summons, James gives a series of seven indictments. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver corrode, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The wages of your laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, cry out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. None of these seven indictments condemn wealth in and of itself. James is not saying, and I am not saying with James, if you make over six figures a year, you fall under these indictments. You might very well make millions of dollars a year and be a very righteous, just person. James is not condemning money. But what he is condemning is how we use our prosperity not to glorify God, not to enjoy him forever, but to abuse others and put ourselves in a position of power, to live in comfort when our neighbor, three pews down, is living in want. James condemns the wealthy who have kept their money to themselves when their brothers and sisters in the church have nothing. Things that I'm very guilty of doing, spending my money on my own comforts, my own enjoyments, when I know someone very closely is having trouble with, with medical bills or with paying their rent that month. James is calling us to remember uh, some of the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But one teaching of Jesus that stuck out to me was the parable of a rich man who had, who had a bountiful harvest, who brought in lots of grain. You could say he got a raise at work, or he took a new job where he made a lot more money, to put in our terms. And instead of building a bigger table, inviting the poor people of the city, instead of hosting his church, helping people with the money he got, he built bigger barns. Or we might think of it, the day we got a raise, we put more in our savings account. We didn't give more to our neighbor. We have bigger bank accounts, we have bigger cars, we have bigger houses. But the guy two pews in front of you didn't make his rent last month. There's a quote I read in the writings of a very old pastor named St. Basil the Great. And he talked about Luke's sermon of bigger barns and bigger bank accounts instead of longer tables and bigger offering plates. And he said, the bread that you have in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. When you have more than you need, it's not for you, it's for someone else. The coat that goes unused in your closet, you stole from the man who's homeless on the street. The extra shoes under your bed that you've never worn rightfully belong to the man in your church who walks here every Sunday because he can't afford a car to get to church. The money you hoard up belongs to the poor. This is what James is saying. All the money that we stacked up, that we hoarded up for ourselves in these last days, the gold and silver that's rotting and corroding in our bank accounts, our clothes that are getting eaten by moths, don't belong to us. Some of you who make far more than the person sitting next to you have more, not because God has prospered you, but because you lack generosity for the poor and the oppressed. Our stuffed closets, our swollen bank accounts, just like the farmer's bigger barns, and the rotting riches and moth-eating clothes that James talks about here, stand to condemn you and me of our greed. The next series of accusations rise up in verses 4. And sorry, in verse 4, they have to deal with the failure to pay workers fairly. Some of you are employers who use other people to make money. You use their labor to line your own pockets. That is not bad. Something needs to be said. If you own a business and you hire people, that in and of itself is not bad. What is bad is when, like James says, you hold back their labor for fraud. These Christians in the church James was writing to, 
were not paying their workers fair wages. And they used other people to become rich when the people they should have been taking care of were left in poverty. I'm sure few wealthy Christians here would see cheating their workers out of money as anything near acceptable. In fact, if you had known one of your accountants was cheating money away from your employees, you fire them because that is unjust. But many wealthy Christians have no problem paying low wages to their employees while they take in more and more every month. Many are okay with allowing others to do the sinning for them through the systems of government-established minimum wages, taking advantage of people by paying them less so you yourself can make more. This is not an easy passage. I never made a pretension that it was. And we see in verse 4 the, the wages that should have gone to the employee but instead went to the employer unjustly. James says that they cry out and reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Uh, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, God said that Abel's blood cried out from the ground because Cain had unjustly spilled it. The blood of oppressed men, women, and children cry out to God against their oppressors. But James says that the money in the pockets of the rich that belongs to the poor cries out like Abel's blood on the ground. I am guilty of this as well, spending my own money for my comforts, for my recreations, living in such a way that I devalue my neighbor by saying I value my joy more than him. The blood, I'm sorry, the money that I spend frivolously cries out for my condemnation as evidence of my greed. The final word that James has against the rich drives the nail in our coffin as the case is sealed up against us, that we are condemned because of our greed. James says in verse 6, to wealthy Christians like myself in America, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. The wealthy have oppressed the righteous poor to the point of death. And yet, as James says, he has not resisted you. Even those of us who try to live responsibly who try to live generously, I'm sure are guilty of owning something like this. Something that was made on the broken backs of sweatshop laborers. You can go in your closets, in your pockets, 
or in the clothes on your back and see that you and I have oppressed someone who has been charged starvation wages to make our lives more comfortable. We see that in our greed, in our avarice, we have, I have, condemned and murdered the righteous person. But in this last accusation, James also gives us the response of the righteous person. Maybe wealth does not apply to you. Maybe you are one of the low-wage workers that are being oppressed. Maybe you are the ones who have been condemned and are being murdered by greed. James says that if you are righteous, if you are the righteous person he's talking about, you do not resist your oppressor. Maybe that's as graphic as you're not joining uh, the workers' unions of Soviet Russia, who felt oppressed and reacted in violence. But I know in my own life, it looks less like that and more like speaking poorly of your employer, maybe calling the person perhaps your fellow Christian who writes your paycheck, stingy, talking about how greedy he is to your co-workers, slandering the rich because you feel like you deserve something more and you didn't get it. Our resistance to oppression, whether it is as wide-scale as revolution and armed revolt or as private, and seemingly insignificant as slandering our employers and our politicians. All of our resistance to oppression is a sign of our pride that we are guilty of the same sins as those condemned rich people. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you oppress the weak or you yourself are oppressed James does not leave any of us innocent John Calvin in his commentary I read on this makes the very sad notes that in James 5 1 through 6 we are only offered a call to lament but no hope Calvin read these verses and looking at his own church in Geneva, which was primarily wealthy bankers, the church he preached at. He saw that he could not offer his people hope in these verses. But instead, he would send them home to lament, to think that they themselves, that you, that I, have sacrificed the weak for our comforts and that our small frivolous joys are built on the broken back 
of slaves and defrauded workers. But praise God, John Calvin was wrong here. That there is still hope even for the oppressing rich and for the resisting oppressed. Because if you read verse 5, and whether you are rich or poor, reading verse 5, that you and you and me, all of you and all of us sinners have condemned and murdered the righteous person who has not resisted us. Our hope is not found in how much we give to the poor. Our righteousness does not arise in our selflessness or in how little we have stolen or in our non-resistance to violence. Our righteousness is found in the only one who James can truly call a righteous person. The damning, condemning hammer blows of this passage are an indictment against the rich, but not simply because they have murdered and condemned the poor, but because we in our greed have condemned and murdered Jesus Christ. In our sin, we are left asking, was it worth it? Was your greed, was your folly, was your desire of comfort at the expense of someone weaker than you worth knowing? that it condemned and murdered Jesus Christ. But praise God that even though we cannot give away enough, we cannot sacrifice enough, we cannot forgive our oppressors enough, Jesus Christ did not resist our violence against him. He could have come down the cross surrounded by angels. He stayed where he was. All the empty promises of wealth seem like nothing with the one promise of Jesus Christ that if we believe on him, seeking our righteousness in him, we will have eternal life. Because ultimately, our righteousness is not found in giving or our patience in suffering, but our righteousness is found in Jesus. Jesus gave all he had to save us. Uh, Paul said, I think it's wonderful, Ben said this in Presbytery yesterday. Jesus gave up all, and by his poverty we are made rich. Jesus did not resist us, but looked at us and gave up heaven to become poor 
for people who would rather have riches than heaven. All the indictments James gave, every judgment that should have been given to us was given to Jesus. And like Jonah preached yesterday, what can separate us from the love of God? Because the God who condemns us stands up to be our advocate. The judge who could pass sentence because we have laid up treasures in the last days, because we have condemned and murdered the righteous person, the judge who can condemn us was judged in our place. And we're about to see when Austin steps up here that picture. This is the judge who did not see us as oppressive, judgmental people, but saw us as something worth saving. This is a picture of the judge who set himself in the path of judgment for people like us who should only weep and howl for the miseries before us. But because of Jesus, because of the righteousness of Christ alone, have hope that we can shout for joy in Zion. Blessings and peace to you all.